We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are back in the warmth of our studio. We are no longer uh, in the Talk Radio tent of shame down on Westminster College Green, uh, but we are still very much focused on what is going on inside the Houses of Parliament and what is going on in the European Commission as well. Because I have to tell you, having watched yesterday what went on uh, in the corridors of power and in the chamber uh, of the European Parliament, I was absolutely and utterly dismayed, disgusted and debilitated to such an extent that I thought there is absolutely no point in talking to these people. I said it yesterday, Theresa May should not be going to Brussels with her begging bowl. She should be asking them to come to London with theirs. And we're going to speak this morning to an MEP uh, who I think agrees with me, Daniel Hannan, of course, who's a Tory, very well spoken, very well up on this whole situation. He's a man who says we should never have agreed to the Irish backstop. We should never have even talked about Ireland. We should never have agreed a whole host of things in the early stages of the negotiations with the European Union. We were far too polite, we were far too deferential, and we were far too willing to give in to everything they asked us to do. I say it's now time to take a stand. I say it's now time to run the clock down and to wait until the 14th of February and if they will not come to us before that time we will have to tell them, quite frankly and very politely, sorry guys you're not going to get the £39 billion. You're not going to uh, be able to watch us leave in an orderly fashion. I'm afraid we are going to leave without a deal and we'll see where that gets us. 0344 499 1000. As ever, we want to hear your voice as much as we want to hear the politicians as much as we want to hear the pundits. And it's not just about Brexit this morning. We're going to be talking about GPs and the dearth of services in the NHS. We're also going to be talking about why champagne was actually invented by the British, not the French. And also, uh, we're going to find out precisely what the weather is going to do in your part of the world. If you're stranded, if you're stuck inside, you can be in no better place than to listen right now for three hours to the greatest radio show in the world on talk radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So we've been watching with some interest careers being made, careers being broken, uh, various MPs slithering around on the floor of the House of Commons, voting one way, voting another. We've watched Jeremy Corbyn finally meeting Theresa May yesterday uh, without really very much happening, which was as we suspected uh, it would turn out. And of course, we saw yesterday the truth and the real uh, veneerless uh, section of the European Union giving us what they really believe is the truth, giving us what they think we should be doing, giving us all sorts of information, giving us all sorts of orders, telling us what we can and can't do. I'm sick to death of it, frankly, and I'm going to talk to Daniel Hannan, MEP, a man that we've spoken to many times on this show, a man who speaks without fear or favour, and a man who knows Europe inside out. And he says this morning in a great piece in The Sun, we should never have given Brussels what they asked for in the first place, and now this whole story about the backstop is a nonsense. Daniel, a very good morning and welcome. Good morning to you, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, I have read your piece in the Sun. I have to say, I agree with every single piece of it. And That's ever since brilliant uh, interview, let's just stop it there, shall yeah. we? That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, ever since uh, ever since uh, we've seen the way that the European Union has behaved towards Britain uh, since the kind of negotiations have really kicked in, I've been absolutely disgusted by their arrogance, uh, by their outright kind of uh, dominance that they think they can uh, press upon us. How do we get out of this? Yeah, I mean, we have gone about these 
negotiations in a spectacularly inept way. Yeah. We have made concession after concession in the hope that Brussels would respond by being nice. And, of course, they have just pocketed everyone. Right. The money, the sequencing, the Irish backstop. And the, the one thing that we cannot swallow is a permanent Irish backstop because unlike EU membership itself, where at least there was an exit clause, what is now on the table is something that we would not be allowed to leave. It's yeah. something that would require us to surrender part of our country. It's something that would require us to allow Brussels to continue to control all of our trade with third countries after we've left. No serious self-respecting democracy can agree with that. And, you know, you, you were talking about the the tone of the debate here in Brussels yesterday, I mean, I thought I was in the chamber listening to them, the sneering and the belittling and the, the, the uh, sort of anti-British undertone. I thought it was, it was becoming increasingly clear that we were dealing with people who don't want a good outcome, who mm. would rather see all sides suffer than watch a post-EU Britain succeed. Because they've never liked the fact that we have never really bought in, uh, have we, Daniel, to the whole kind of European project, culturally, politically, uh, and ideologically. We're not clubbable in that way. No, I think it would have been... I mean, in a way, the tragedy is that we weren't able to negotiate a, 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 a sort of modus vivendi, a way that we could say, all right, we'll be part of the market, but outside of your political yeah. project, you know, we'll, we'll be cheering you along. We wish you all the best, but we're not going to be part of it. And in a way, it, the, you know, British membership for decades was about us trying to get a looser relationship. David Cameron, at the beginning of 2016, went to say, could we get some powers back? If he'd come back with a single retrieval of power, with, why, you know, if he'd just got mm. back fisheries or just one thing, I think he would have won the referendum because people would have then said, oh, they're being reasonable. Power doesn't only have to be sucked into the centre. It can go back to the nation states too. But faced with the loss of their second financial contributor, the EU was still not prepared to no. allow any decentralisation of and power. And that ultimately is why we had to leave. No, indeed. And as, as, as we watch more and more, and I saw Nigel Farage's speech yesterday, and I'm not a massive supporter of Nigel Farage. You know, not every time he speaks does he say the right thing. But when he said yesterday that these are the kind of agreements that only a country that had been defeated in a war would sign, I thought, that actually resonates with me. We get told all the time by the left, oh, you can't bring up the Second World War, that's bad form. Well, forget that. You know, the fact is that he is correct to say that they are treating us as if we are some kind of defeated you know realm and, and and we have to do what they tell us well that's not the way to approach it surely well actually after the second world war uh, i'm pretty sure we wrote off all of the debts that well exactly had, and we tried very hard to rehabilitate them and we succeeded and, yeah. and, and germany went on to become a, a a liberal democracy and that was a you know uh, it was if you like a great act of generosity from our part but no this is there is i'm afraid we're dealing in brussels with people who are just so angry about brexit mm. they regard it as a kind of blasphemy against closer union and their mood is therefore punitive it's vindictive they you know we need to be seen to have suffered for having blasphemed against the project mm. now it is worth saying that not everyone in the national capitals feels that way. If you talk to people, especially in some of the capitals of the countries that do a lot of trade with us, in, in The Hague or in Copenhagen, they are very worried about the prospect of uh, any amicable Brexit deal breaking down for the sake of a backstop that all sides say that they don't expect to right. be activated anyway, right? So, so there is, a, and, and equally, some of the countries that have a lot of their citizens here you know, the, the Polish government was saying, why don't we put a time limit on the, on the backstop? Again, they don't understand why we should allow the whole process to break down, which would mean no backstop mm. anyway, obviously, right. when we could at least agree all the other stuff. So there are alternative voices in the national capitals saying, 
you know, we need a good deal with Britain. We should be practical about this. We want to have a long-term alliance with them. We don't want to poison relations. But as you heard yesterday, the mood in Brussels is much more peevish and aggressive than that. No, indeed, and that is where the problem lies, in my view, because, as you said quite rightly at the start, Daniel, you know, they think that they run us. They think that they run Europe, and these are unelected officials who don't run really anything and don't have any right to run anything. Should we therefore be uh, more sensibly negotiating, perhaps, uh, around Brussels and with the capitals of various individual nations, like France, like Germany, like Spain, like Italy, perhaps, I don't know where else, um, to try and get them to pressurise Juncker and his mates uh, to actually do the right thing. Well, I think that is going on, and we'll we'll know in in a few days' time whether it's having any success mm. at all. The trouble is that although privately they're all very concerned, they've so far been publicly unwilling to step out of line. But let's just stand back and think about what is being said here. Right, the EU is saying we regard the act of leaving as basically hostile right. to the extent that we're not even prepared to talk to you about mitigating the the obvious. Uh, uh, dislocations that come up, will come up in terms of, sort of policing and road transport and air transport. And so on. In other words, what they're really saying is if you are not our subject, mm. you cannot be our friends. The right. only relations that we want with you are either complete membership or hostility. You can't have alliance from the outside. And if that's their attitude, and you've got to judge them by their actions rather than their words, that is their attitude mm. so far, then how on earth could we have remained a member of such an organisation? No, quite. And also, given that we are one of their biggest ever trading partners in the world, surely they ought to treat us with a bit more respect, and surely we should be using that as leverage as well against them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what will happen if there is no deal is that it will be a mild headache, right? I mean, I think we should... We, we, both, both sides are guilty of... Uh, of exaggerate yes it's not going to be the end of the world there will be some traffic jams there'll be some disruption you know there are worse things in the life of a nation equally though it's not the end of the world for them i think leavers should be honest about this we, we can't have this both ways we can't say that wto terms are fine for us but will be you know catastrophic for, for german car exporters on both cases on both sides it will be a mild pain yes uh, and something we could do without but you've got to say well why, why not avoid even a mild pain when it costs you absolutely nothing to do the deal i mean I, i'm just going to come back and say this one more time because the, the logic here is is inescapable parliament is plainly not going to stay in the eu and it is plainly not going to swallow the backstop. So there are therefore only two choices. Either we take out the backstop but agree everything else, the money, the reciprocal rights for each other's citizens, all the transitional arrangements, or we lose the backstop and lose all of that as well. Now, when you, when you put it like that, it's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, it really is. And, I mean, as far as the whole kind of uh, scenario is concerned over the next couple of weeks, I said yesterday that I don't think that uh, Theresa May should even bother going to Brussels. I think she should order them to come and visit us until so, or, or unless and until such time as they come up uh, with something that we can actually talk about. Because if they're going to be so obstinate and so obdurate and so arrogant as to say that there's no point in negotiating anymore, the negotiations are closed, what, what on earth is the point of her going over there? Mm. The trouble she's got is that Brussels keeps hearing from people in Britain who it trusts and knows, like Tony Blair and John Major and Nick Clegg and Peter Mandelson, that no deal is not going to be allowed to happen. So if you think about it from their point of view, if you were an EU negotiator and you've got all of these British Europhiles saying, you don't need to worry, we're not going to walk away, 
then you think, well, in that case, they'll have to sign whatever we put in front of them, however unreasonable, however bellicose, however humiliating. Mm. And, and the people who have been pompously for two years saying, I will not allow no deal and the, and the parliament will not pass, all they have succeeded in doing is making the Brussels negotiating stance harder and more aggressive and therefore, paradoxically, making no deal more likely. And what about what we should be doing next and when they will perhaps uh, recognise that we're serious? Because up until now, I get the sense watching what happened yesterday that they do think they can bully Britain. They do think that Theresa May uh, is a soft touch. They do think that whoever our negotiating team is, uh, that they'll get whatever they want and we won't get anything. Right, and that's, in fairness, a perfectly rational thing to have concluded <laughs> given our behaviour over the last well, few indeed. years. Well, right? so indeed. You can't blame them for that. No, and as long as, uh, uh, because we've, we've literally swallowed every one of their demands up until this backstop, they, they think that if they push, we'll swallow that as well, because that's been our, our behaviour to date. I think they've misjudged us. It is a, a national characteristic of ours, not a particularly attractive one, that we tend to leave things until almost mm. too late that we concede and concede and concede, and then suddenly we switch from vague amiability to terrible resolve. Right. And I sense a shift in mood this week mm. in Britain. So I think there is no way that we will sign a deal that requires us to accept the jurisdictional annexation of Northern Ireland. No, I, I indeed. I don't think that is it, conceivably on the agenda. Once we leave without a deal, if that's what it comes to, if the EU refuses to, to make any... Uh, flexible moves at all, then I think uh, very quickly they go from trying to bully us into signing something, once it's clear that that hasn't been signed, to finding practical ways around it. Mm. Because, you know, the, the, Euro, uh, the Eurozone economy is very weak. Britain is growing faster at the moment than the Eurozone. Uh, the German economy is forecast to slow down uh, immensely, largely because of the, the Brexit impact. So all sides once it's clear that Britain isn't going to sign up to the backstop, we'll find we'll have a huge incentive to work around and, and make sure that the the customs arrangements and so on continue to function. And you know Brussels better than most people, Daniel. What do you say to those who continually remind me uh, that, well, of course, everybody knows the EU only ever really uh, negotiate in the final hour uh, of the final day uh, of the final minute of the negotiations as the, as the red line and the uh, deadline approaches, and that's when they'll give in. But, I mean, can we afford to, to depend on that, or, or do you think that's a bit of a shibboleth? I mean, I, I don't think we can. I don't think we can bluff here. I think we have to be ready for no deal. I think we have to prepare on the basis that we are leaving without a deal, but leave on the table the offer to the EU until the very last minute. Mm. That, of course, if they're flexible on the backstop, we're prepared to be reasonable. And and by the way, that that involves us swallowing a lot of stuff. I mean, the, the idea that we are not compromising is ridiculous, right? It means yeah. that we. It means we accept these payments that no no international court really thinks we owe. It means we accept basically 21 months of non-voting membership. It means that we accept continuing jurisdiction for that period for Euro judges in Britain. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here mm. that Eurosceptics have had to grit their teeth and put up with, which you know they didn't want to be doing from first principles, but they've done it for the sake of being reasonable, uh, finding a compromise that all sides can live with. The EU has not made a single gesture the other way. No, indeed. And what about your own situation, Daniel? What are you hearing about May the 19th and whether or not you're supposed to be preparing for elections? Because a lot of people still think that because Theresa May uh, is at heart a Remainer, she may well take the view uh, that there isn't time to get all this done before March the 29th. We may need uh, an extension of one kind or another, even if it's only a couple of weeks. Are you under the impression that you will be standing uh, for election in the European Parliament in May or not? 
No, I'm not. I, I think, I mean, it, 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 it's conceivable that, you know, the government could collapse and Labour could get in and reverse the whole thing or something like that. Mm. But in, in the realistic... They don't want to do that, though, uh, do they? No, they don't. Because, <laughs> they, 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 you know, uh, I, I think what Parliament has shown is that there isn't a majority for a second referendum. No. I mean, the, the, the MPs who wanted one were very vocal, uh, very public, and I think they discredited a lot of their colleagues who were being a lot more reasonable about this. Mm. But I don't think there's a majority for, for staying in. So the, the only extension we'd be talking about would be one that would be, as it were, before the new Parliament meets. And in other words, it wouldn't require us to fight another European election. Uh, I think if we if, if Brussels shows some flexibility and we get a deal and, and it's then just a question of a few weeks to get the, the requisite legislation through, I think British Leave voters will all understand that. I think if we've got a clear exit date that we're coming out at the end of June or whatever, no one is going to complain about a few extra weeks after 45 years in this organisation. I think fighting the European election would be a sign that we were staying permanently. Daniel, as ever, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Daniel Hannan, MEP there, uh, putting out his uh, principled stand on what we should be doing in the European Union, why uh, we need to leave and why we should not be being bullied around uh, by these characters who sit there in the European Commission, who are not even elected, but who treat us with scant regard and who are so arrogant that they tell us there's absolutely no chance of renegotiating anything. Well, they can get stuffed as far as I'm concerned. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. We've got entertainment and we're not afraid to use it. Talk Radio. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Independent Republican Mike Graham, you know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Francis says, both my daughters were taken off the doctor's register because they never went. Receptionist assumed we had left the area. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, Refine says, I don't even have a GP as I haven't been to one for over 20 years. I can't understand why people go there habitually for no good reason. I should go more often than I do, but I'm put off by what I hear about the experience. Well, I must admit, when you do go, you will find yourself sitting in a room with a lot of people who look as if they go there a lot uh, and look as if they're very, very comfortable with the actual scenario. Uh, in which they find themselves. Now, uh, a lot of you want to talk about the EU situation and Brussels and the bureaucrats and how awful uh, they are behaving. Let's go first to Vicky, who's in Brighton. Hi, Vicky. Hello, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have found just your programme and the station. Um, I was listening with great interest to Daniel Hannan mm. and what he said, and I, of course, agree with everything he said. Uh, my background is I'm retired now, but I did a lot of big contracts when I ran a business in London, etc. Right. Okay. And certainly the way this has been negotiated is quite appalling, absolutely appalling on the British side. But the point I really wanted to make was that this arrogance of these non-elected bureaucrats in Brussels just proves to me beyond any shadow of a doubt how they can take years and years and years to negotiate a trade contract with any country that has the audacity to be outside the EU. Yeah. I mean, it's just un. Believable. It's shocking, isn't it? I mean, he was quite right to say that we started off from the wrong premise at the beginning, and so we're hardly really likely to get anywhere now, are we? Of course not, exactly. When I've done big contracts, you go in smiling, friendly, shipping sail, you know, and opening gambit. I hope you can do business, but a lot depends on, you know, it takes two to tango. Yeah. And that's the way you go forward. And you never, 
ever, ever give any impression that you will not not walk away. Yes. I mean, of I think course. in her case, I suppose it's been quite tricky in the sense that, you know, there's been all sorts of things going on around her, like, for example, the European Union people talking to uh, Remainers in this country saying and, and, being, and being told, oh, well, don't worry, uh, we'll make sure there's another referendum, we'll make sure we win that one. Or Tony Blair saying, oh, of course, most people in Britain don't really want to leave, which can't be helpful. Of course not. This is the whole point. What the hell do they think they've been doing for the last two years? Mm. Why have they been going out to the EU? What have they been talking about? You know, we should have been a united front. Yes. Exactly as they've managed to be in the EU. Right. These, I think it's appalling. And as for phony Tony, exactly. <laughs> oh, Listen, Vicky, you should anyway. be part of that negotiating team. Bring yourself out of retirement immediately and get over there, please. Well, I tell you, I campaigned for leave. And, you know, the most insulting thing that was said to me was somebody said, who was obviously a Remainer, well, you know, you look comfortably off, you, you know, well-educated. Why on earth are you wanting to want to leave the EU? Because it must suit you very well. I said, funnily enough, yes, I am quite financially independent, etc. But, you know, funny that I care passionately about my fellow Brits yeah. who are doing very badly by being in the EU. You know, perhaps if you start to think a little bit more like that, you know. Well, when you see these people in action, I mean, I was my blood was boiling last night watching these characters because I think to myself, how dare you? It's bad enough watching your own MPs who are taking public money and you know ripping off the public purse to do their job. But when you see people in Europe doing it to absolutely no effect and of no use to us whatsoever, I just don't want to pay them anymore. I've had enough. No, I... I couldn't, I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. And lovely to speak to you, Mike. Vicky, brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Vicky, a new caller from Brighton. What a fantastic woman. She should be part of that team. Absolutely. Maybe we should form our own team, like the A team, and just head over there. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Independent Republic of Mike Graham, you know what to do. 0344 499 There's still time to get some of your calls on before Matthew Wright joins us uh, to take on his show uh, at one o'clock. Right now, though, uh, I'm going to tell you a little story uh, about a man that I used to work for, bizarrely, uh, in a, uh, a, a years and years ago situation at the Daily Express. Mark Palmer, a newspaper executive of some renown, uh, is now working at the Daily Mail. I opened the paper this morning only to be shocked and stunned to see a picture of him wielding a mop. Uh, in front of uh, a, a woman sitting on a couch uh, and apparently giving him orders as to how to clean his house. Could the Queen of Clean turn me into a domestic god, uh, is what it says. And uh, Mark's on the line now. Mark, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Well, very good afternoon to you, to, to you Mike. And now, uh, very nice to hear from you. Obviously, I've taught you everything that you know. <laughs> and uh, and, I can, and, now, and now I can teach you about how to, how to clean your house. Well, you, 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 I mean, I would love, I'd love that to be the case. I can't imagine you really doing this for, for, for real. I mean, because everybody at the moment is obsessed with the decluttering of the house, isn't it? You know that, uh, uh, that woman who is uh, known as Marie Kondo on Netflix. She's this Japanese woman who comes into your house and says, throw everything away unless it gives you joy. So I thought she perhaps... Wants, she, she wants to destroy all the character that you've got in your yeah. house and, and to make it completely sort of anodyne. And, uh, and I think the same could be said in a way for people who are obsessed with, 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 with cleaning things yeah. because you can never, ever, you can never draw close to it. I mean, my wife, for example, occasionally 
starts polishing, and then and then she polishes some more, and then polishes something else, and so in the end, you could spend your entire life just polishing your way yeah. around 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 the world. Well, I've been in people's houses which are so clean that you're kind of frightened to do anything, and you know, you put a glass down maybe uh, and and walk away, and by the time you come back, they've removed the glass and put it somewhere else. I hate well, that. Exactly. I really hate that. But but this woman that you've got you know, your hands on is a, is a Polish a cleaning woman, cleaning queen. You describe her as Eva Bialonas. Where does she come from? Well, I haven't got my hands on her yet, Mike. That is for sure. But, uh, but she, she, actually, she actually won an award. She's the AA's Housekeeper of the Year. And apparently they go around hotels and they, uh, they then actually choose someone that they think uh, is the best cleaning person uh, in the country. And this is a very posh uh, five-star hotel mm. uh, in, in Rutland. And so um, I thought it would be quite amusing to try to find out, well, you know, what is it? now that makes this woman so special what is her the sort of tips that she's got and there were actually some things which i thought were, were interesting and that could help the sort of the palmer budget for example that uh, much better to use vinegar mm. to clean a mirror uh, or to clean glass of any kind with just scrunched up newspaper than to use sort of window lean or a, and right. a proper cloth so that was that was a help doesn't it leave a bit of a nasty after smell though the vinegar it it, it 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 just sort of it goes away very quickly. You'll be you'll be surprised. And another one that she taught me, uh, which was to to put um, um, Coca Cola down the loo. Best place um, for and, it, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> 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 Do you remember when one when was when a child one used to occasionally put a put a, a penny or something in a in a glass yes. of Coca Cola, and you could see after a few hours that it was no longer a, a penny. Well. Um, I suppose it's the same sort of principle yeah. um, that, that Coca Cola removes stains and is actually a lot cheaper than, than buying sort of high powered bleach. My kids' favourite thing to do in America was to get one of those giant uh, uh, sort of bottles of plastic bottles of Coca Cola and, and fill it with Mentos. Mentos, you know, those kind of sweets which apparently make it explode and it would then be this kind of Coca Cola fountain. But but certainly uh, pouring, uh, well, pouring it down the toilet sounds like a good idea. What about this idea of, of, of brushing with a toothbrush around the sort of uh, parts of the bathroom that you can't otherwise? clean i mean that that's not i mean that's the sort of work you do when you're in prison isn't it <laughs> well, that was a revelation i must say um and uh there, and and she she yeah tiny little toothbrush just to go in between the tiles i mean honestly i mean life's too short but right. I, she, she was explaining though that which is probably absolutely true that when you're paying i don't know 300 400 pounds a night uh in her in her posh hotel um and someone comes in and they, they would notice the tiniest little mark on the tiles, and they might start complaining and say it's all got to be uh, tickety boo. Yeah. The other thing I don't know about you, Mike, but um, I thought that a do you either have on a bed, you either had a duvet, yeah. or you have um, sheets and and blankets. Yeah. But no, apparently that if you have a a duvet, you still should have a top sheet. Apparently, and the top sheet should be folded neatly over the top of the duvet. Oh, really? I, that. I must yeah. admit, there's nothing better than getting into one of those really expensive hotels and that fantastic bedding, and you kind of, you know, you sink into it, and the bed's beautiful, and it's all clean and crisp and all that, and you can never really recreate that at home. And I suppose if you did, that would kind of ruin hotels for you, because the whole point of going to a hotel is to have a better experience than you have at home, isn't it? Well, exactly. That's exactly right. And and to, to make sure that you... Well, I always find if I go with my wife to a hotel... It, well, uh, surely don't go with anybody dangerous. else, Mark, for heaven's sake. <laughs> <laughs> it's very dangerous because you go... And then and then she she, she sees on the bed these lovely pillows. Yeah. And immediately she says, why don't we have these pillows at home? And yeah. before you know it, you know, you're, you're down at... Uh, 
uh, you know, buying buying new pillows. Yes. So it, can, it, it can be very dangerous. It can. The other thing I, I didn't realise that the way you puff up a pillow is also, um, that's an art form in itself. Right. And, and, that, and you're meant to, they're meant to be just a little sort of tucked at the top. They're meant mm. to be a little sort of tuck. Uh, to make it look, uh, I suppose, that more that more fancy. So um, I have learnt a lot, Mike, and uh, I won't but... be coming around to your house to sort things <laughs> well, out. Well, I've actually got a very... I've got an amazing woman who comes and cleans my place about once a month, and she's also really good at organising, and every time she comes, she, she sort of gets rid of more stuff because I've got piles and piles of junk that I, I refuse to throw away, you know, like old bank statements and, and you know, books that I've never that I've never likely to read that I've got from, from work and stuff like that. You know, she's really good at organising my life, but, but I'm hopeless at cleaning. If I, before I got her, you know, quite often I would only really clean things if I if somebody was coming round or my, my kids were visiting or something like that. Mm. Uh, you know, I just didn't really... I, I'm not a... Cl- I can't clean. It's just not for me. No, no, I can I can see you get that. Although there is actually something pretty amazing, even at your desk or anything like that. If occasionally once in a while and you get into the into the mood and you start to clear everything out... Yeah. And, and and then you sort of you know clean the top and it is it is incredibly satisfying. There's no mm. question about that. But the thing is that it takes such a very very short time uh, for everything to become sort of cluttered yeah. and, and filthy again. My point always is that my mess is I always think is very superficial mess. That it's just things lying around. It's not fundamental mess. Whereas my wife, it's fundamental mess in that everything is neat and tidy. But you go into the drawers. And it's a complete shambles. It's absolutely chaotic. And so this woman came down, and she was very much dealing with the exteriors. I'm now trying to work on the home front on dealing with the interior mess in our house. Right. And is Mrs. Palmer now of the opinion that she can sort of put you to work as a, as a skivvy, as it were? Well, Mrs. Mrs. Palmer saw, saw, the, saw the piece today, and, um, <laughs> and then we joked about how I did, how, how Ewa was actually going to, this woman called Ewa, that she was actually going to move in. And, uh, <laughs> um, um, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, down. well, good luck with that. I'll, I'll take your call next time when you've split up, I guess. But, Mark, listen, have a great day. Thank you very much indeed. Mark Palmer, uh, the domestic god uh, of the Daily Mail. Have a look at it. It's on page 49. Uh, he's there with a mop. Eva's watching him admiringly, and uh, he's learned how to clean. You know, I just don't want to do it, to be honest. It's not because I'm above that sort of thing. I just, not, I'm just not particularly good at it. I don't want to waste my time doing it, and so I don't do it. It's that simple. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And I think a lot of people would echo that we are sick to death of talking about Brexit. So let's talk about something much more fun, which is, of course, champagne. And let's talk to Helena Nicklin, uh, our favourite wine writer uh, and connoisseur of the grape. Uh, she's also, by the way, a television star now, which we'll talk about in a minute. Helena, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Very well indeed. Now, the last time I saw you was in a rather auspicious party uh, at the Dorchester, <laughs> which I'll talk more of later uh, for your new TV show. But tell us uh, how Mr. Monsieur Tattinger has come to the conclusion that somehow uh, the French didn't invent champagne. It was us. <laughs> well, you know, they know a thing or two about it. And by the way, I don't know if you know, they now have their own vineyard in Kent. Well, I was uh, listening to one, one. In fact, one of our callers, Susan in Exeter, said that the, the French are buying up vineyards in Kent. So I, that, that was news to me, I must say. Yeah, no, there are quite a few um, French down, well, in England now, buying right. buying vineyards for exactly, well, well, for many reasons. One being that we make amazing sparkling wine now. We do. But yes, we are actually credited with 
inventing the production method of champagne. Mm. Obviously, sparkling wine has happened spontaneously forever since the Roman times, but no one really knew how or why. But it was an Englishman, Christopher Merritt, 1662, who actually put down on paper how you go about making wine sparkling, and he did this with champagne. That's an amazing thing to think. I mean, I always think this about great inventions of our time, whether it's, you know, the motor car or, or the wheelie bin or now champagne. I mean, who would have come up with that idea and gone, why don't we make this have bubbles in it? This would be great. <laughs> well, it, well, exactly. Well, it ha- happened all by mistake, really. Bubbles, bubbles in booze does. You know, right. temperatures rise, fermentation happens, bottles explode. It was seen as an error for years. In fact, Don Perignon spent years trying to stop fermenta- extra, the secondary fermentation bubbles. Really? Yeah, because he, he didn't want the wine to be exploding. And it was wow. only 30 years after Christopher Merritt's paper that he was credited with saying... Come quickly, I'm tasting the stars. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Now, I once yeah. went to the, the calves in, in Reims, and I went to the mum's um, uh, place and, and watched the, and, you know, went on the tour and everything. And one thing that I was surprised about was that they pour, like, a little bit of liqueur into the, into the champagne bottle before they cork it, right? Yeah, that's right. That's how it gets its bubbles in the right. bottle when you're making champagne. Yeah, they make a still wine first, and then they add a little bit of sugary liquid, and it kickstarts a fermentation again, a secondary fermentation. Yeah. But they don't let the gas escape, so it dissolves into the... And I've always wanted one of those jobs, a sort of summer job, to go, you know, the guy that turns the bottle. Do you just basically walk around? A Riddler. It's called a Riddler. Is it called a Riddler? And you turn the bottle like a quarter of revolution and then come back later and turn it another quarter of revolution. It's fantastic. If you want that job, Mike, I can probably get you one. Can you? Oh, brilliant. I don't suppose it pays terribly well, though. Probably not, but you know you'll drink well. But yeah, I mean, when when, I, when when I'm when I'm too old and useless to do anything else, I may take you up on that. Now, tell us about your uh, your new TV venture because as much as I know you as the wine bird and the wine connoisseur that you are, uh, you're now moving into what can only be described as other uh, beverages, not uh, to wit, whiskey. All boozes, yeah. Well, this particular one, it's really exciting. Um, for us, the three drinkers do Scotch whiskey. Right. Um, it's streaming now live on Prime Video. If I'm allowed to say that. Yes, you are. Um, no, but it's 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 fantastic because obviously when you work in booze, you you know a bit about other areas too. I did mm. um, I did whiskey as part of my diploma, but um, my great friend Colin, who's one of the other presenters, right? Um, who I think you met. Uh, you know, he you know he really is he's very well connected in Scotland. So he thought, let's do this one. And gosh, it was immense. And you fun. basically and just drive around in a great big Land Rover and uh, yeah. and visit various distilleries around the Scottish Highlands, which sounds like a great job. Yeah, it's pretty nice, really. And you know, we're, well, we're planning another two this year, right? Uh, and, and involving wine next time. Uh, but it, it was great. We're launching in America next week, and so yeah, it's all very exciting. It's all very exciting, yeah. And so you're now where? Where can we find you uh, online? Because I've got to get you in for a tasting at some point when you've got some time. Ah uh, yes, well I'm still winebird.co.uk, but also the threedrinkers.com is where you'll find out everything about what we're doing with whiskey and what we will be doing soon. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.